0: Purple Elephant shower thought of the day saying, Don't take advice from me is a paradox. This is Purple Elephant Radio, where we hear about storytelling, originality, and creativity from the creators who are actually making something matter. I'm your host, Sean Green. We're here. Episode 21, the bonus episode for season two The Subtle Art of Branding Yourself as a Creative. This episode is more relevant than ever. And the reason I'm making it is because I needed to figure out the information myself. Because the stuff I'm going to share in this episode is so critical to what I'm trying to do to be a freelancer and maybe turn that into some form of a business. This information that I've been trying to extract from books I've been reading is vital. And the way I see it is that we're reverting back to farms. We're reverting back even further to hunting and gathering. Except now we're using technology instead of uh, physical land. And the seeds we're planting and the berries we're picking are coming in the forms of ideas. And this new age requires us to dig niches, groups within groups, subcategories. Because in order to be the best at something now, we have to invent the category ourselves. So this episode, as much as I'll try to name a few interesting trends and, you know, predictions i'd like to see in the future i can't tell you boom go into this space and you know study your butt off and you know learn coding and then you'll be profitable for the rest of your life that's not what this is about that's not what i'm about i i can't tell you what to make i can't tell you the what because then it wouldn't be risky it wouldn't be creative or innovative you would just be following the steps But I feel in this episode, I can teach you how to think, how to make the subtle mindset shifts so that you're prepared for uh, the unknown. When technology changes rapidly, when there's a new social media that comes out and everyone's all over it, then you'll know how to think about it. I've recently come to the conclusion that what I'm doing with Purple Elephant Collective, all of it. The podcast the blogs films the collage art it's all a hobby in a sense all of this is professional amateurism i say professional because i'm working on a deadline i'm blogging daily i'm doing a podcast weekly but it's amateurism because i'm not i'm not adapting for an audience and what I've realized in this kind of self-awareness, first of all, it's sad because Purple Elephant is basically a third of my life right now. And it's sad to think this might not be a decade-long thing that I'm doing, that I may adapt, but it was encouraging immensely because it kind of lifted this burden off my shoulders that... Purple Elephant isn't going to be the only thing I create. I know for a fact that there will be plenty of other important, inspiring projects that take up my time in the future, maybe in the near future, and that it excites me. And so, the first lesson, the first subtle piece of branding yourself as a creative is: make projects, but don't don't identify with them so deeply that. You feel like if they fail, then a part of you has failed. And I feel like that, that's practically cliche, the amount I've heard that. But I think the key is, if I'm writing a blog for Purple Elephant every day, and one day I decide I'm not going to renew the website, I'm just going to let it simmer, I'm going to let it fade away. Yes, I may have lost that. But I sure as hell didn't lose my ability to write. And you know. uh, If I do a year of blogging. And maybe I I didn't write the, the stuff that people came to see. Maybe I didn't write the clickbait articles and the listicles. So I didn't get a massive audience. Or I didn't write about a topic that everyone's interested in. But the fact is. I'm learning how to write on a schedule. Whether or not. I feel like writing. I'm I'm teaching myself professional traits. I'm teaching myself how to basically become a pro while still in this amateur stage. And maybe that sounds confusing, but the reason I can't turn the Purple Elephant blog and all this stuff I'm doing into a, a viable source of income is because I'd have to massively change the the stuff I write. I would have to deeply adapt it to a certain subgroup. And I like having the freedom as it stands to write what whatever ideas are floating around in my mind. I like being able to write about philosophy one day and then my thoughts about money and the stock market the next. Because I'm not pandering to an audience with Purple Elephant, but I've learned you have to. If you want to make an income in in one project, you have to market to a a subgroup there's a great quote by jeff richards which says creativity without strategy is called art creativity with strategy is called advertising and that transitions well to talking about marketing because this is something that i really had to figure out for myself to be able to give you something tangible as a, a creative what what role does marketing play I mean, we're talking about branding, which is a part of marketing. So clearly it's important. And I read Permission Marketing by Seth Godin. And I think what it cleared up for the first time is that you need some ounce of interruption marketing, just an ounce of it. You need an ad on social media or uh, a 30 second spot before a YouTube video, because otherwise, There would be no awareness of you, of your brand. You need that ounce of it. The only exception would be if your network is so strong that you're able to message people and just be like, hey, I'm working on this. Or you're able to go to networking events in person, which clearly isn't possible right now. And you're shaking a hundred people's hands and you're saying, this is what I'm doing. That would be the exception Of just going solely word of mouth. But at the same time. It would be very difficult. To build that up. So there's some level of. Interruption marketing needed. But. You don't need much. And when you do. You have to. Instead of getting someone to. Buy something. Off an interruption marketing. Or off an interruption ad. You need to get permission that should be the goal of interruption marketing what i mean to say is if you're a writer and you have a a newsletter but you also sell a sixty dollar course with your interruption advertising you don't you don't sell the course off of that you just ask people to sign up for your newsletter which basically means you don't see that sale instantly, but you get permission, which can pay out tenfold. You know, I think people know the this common knowledge idea of just, it's much easier to keep a client or a a customer than it is to find a new one. And the idea of permission marketing, and I think I, I mentioned this in a episode way back when, the, the freakonomics episode. All you need is a thousand true fans. True loyal fans, and that could sustain your career. And again, it's not easy, but by building that permission asset, you're basically investing in an audience that will compound and pay you more and more as time goes on and you have more things to offer more things to sell and i should just be clear that this advice is more applicable for a creative who's selling something directly to a customer this advice isn't as easily applicable to someone like a freelancer who's working with businesses as their clients but you should still listen to it because I think building a following, building a, uh, whether that's social media, a newsletter, whatever it may be, that can be attractive to clients. If you, you know, if let's say you have 5,000 followers on Instagram, that's some nice leverage to have when you're trying to work with a, a, a soda company to make a, a new commercial for them. So that would be the second subtle piece of branding yourself is treat your audience like a valuable asset. And I don't want to say that to take away the humanity of your audience, of your fans, people who follow your work, cause they are people too. I'm in the audience of plenty of people I look up to and admire. You know, you've probably heard me talk about Seth Godin in this podcast more times than I can count on my hands. Clearly, I'm a, a fanboy, and I'm willing to bet that everyone is a, a fanboy or fan gal in some area, for some creator, for some brand. But you also need to be able to be that person yourself, to develop your audience yourself. We can't just consume for the rest of our lives. We have to offer something. We have to offer something. We have to offer something. In the book called the Almanac of Naval Ravikant by Eric Jorgensen. And I'll refer to this book again later in the episode. But he says, Two ways to be successful for the rest of your life, two skills that you need to have are to learn to sell and learn to build. As creatives, we know how to build. The painter can paint the filmmaker can film building is simply a byproduct of of having that passion for whatever artistic medium you're in so we know how to build but the real struggle i think for creatives for artists for myself is to learn to sell and i've written about this before and i i've never come to a clear answer but what does the creative sell and here's the tricky question because um when everything is so cheap to produce and people expect youtube videos to be free which they are um If someone's going to be a YouTuber, a YouTube creator, what do they sell? What, and what do they sell to make uh, an income? Because, yeah, anyone can sell uh, 10 hoodies, but that's not going to sustain them. That's not going to pay the bills. So what do you sell? That, I think, is the most important question for a creative to ask. Because there are, two, there are two routes to go. There are probably more, but two routes as I see it. Actually scratch that. There are three routes to go from the way I see it, and there are probably more that I'm missing. But the obvious route is freelance. To do, take your skill to businesses, to clients. You're not working directly with the consumer, with your audience. The downside of that is you might have a little bit less freedom in terms of what you're creating. I mean, not many clients are going to hire you to make short films that aren't related to their brand. But the upside of that is you're not relying on you know, your YouTube audience. You don't have to succumb to gamifying the, the algorithm as much you don't have to use clickbait in every art in every video just to get you know rack up a million views because you're not as dependent on that and you can really focus on the genuine connection with your audience you're not as focused on getting the numbers up the second route would be the opposite of that and that would be focusing specifically on your audience on the audience you're building up with whatever skill it is, whatever you're offering, whether you're teaching something about um, a skill, whether you're teaching someone, oh, this is how I edit in Premiere. This is how I color grade things. Or this is how I draw. This is my style. When you build up that audience and you focus on them and you listen to them and you have a dialogue with them and say, what do you want to see from me? What do you want to learn more about? Eventually you can... Use any number of means to ask your audience to support you. You can use Patreon or you can create merchandise and be like, hey, I just made these hoodies. It would mean a lot if you buy them. And if you built that trust, if you built that permission asset with your audience and they said, I like what you make, I like who you are, I want to support you, then that can be a sustainable way to live. And the third way, and I think this somewhat relates to the first way of doing freelance work, working with clients, but the third way, as I see it, and this is kind of something I've recently thought about, is building your audience, but creating a business unrelated on the side. Now, what that means, to give you a specific example, I think of Casey Neistat, when he made the media company Beam. I I remember hearing in a talk he gave that he started his famous vlog and if if the people don't know what i'm talking about if you guys don't know what i'm talking about i'll link it in the show notes but you know his vlog was iconic he kind of created that before vlogs were a thing but he said he made he started the vlog because he wanted to show the behind the scenes of the media company he was working on now Fast forward, he doesn't stick with that, but the key thing is that he wasn't dependent on his audience, but he was still building that permission asset. What I'm basically saying for that is to be an entrepreneur and a creator simultaneously and not mixing the two. There's a podcast I listened to called Made You Think, and it's basically two guys talking about books they've read. And each of these two people have their own businesses, unrelated. One like brews beer or something, and one started a a tea business. And their podcast has nothing to do with that. And yet, somehow I can tell you about it. Because they bring it up in a non-intrusive way. Their goal of making the podcast is simply to talk about the books. And they've sold me, and I come back every time they post an episode because... I, I love to hear them talk about the books. But because they've sold me, I can hear their, their personal story. And, you know, I, I've looked up their businesses, even though they don't say, you know, check it out, here's a coupon. No, they don't offer any of that. They've simply won me over. I trust them with the content they produce. And because I trust them, I want to see what else they create, what else they're working on. Here's a quote from uh, a Seth Godin blog post, and he was basically talking about the stories marketers tell us. And he says, great stories agree with our worldview. The best stories don't teach people anything new. Instead, the best stories agree with what the audience already believes and makes the members of the audience feel smart and secure when reminded how right they were in the first place. And I love this quote because I think it it perfectly illustrates what the job of a marketer is or I I should say what a business is meant to do. Let's take something like a food philosophy. Say like vegan, going vegan. The people who read vegan blog posts don't want to hear on on a vegan website, don't want to hear about how keto could be blah, 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 be helpful for them. And vice versa, the people on a keto website don't want to hear, uh, maybe you're eating too much fat and protein. Maybe you want to avoid animal products. They don't want to read that. What they want to hear is this confirmation bias of when I read something on a keto website, I want to be like, yeah, I'm doing that. And there's a reason I'm doing it. And it's good for me based on what this article is telling me. And we have to remind ourselves, this is not the news. This is not journalism. This is not the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. This is business. And it's not about deceiving people. But it's about giving people what they want. I I forget which book it was. It, It was another Seth Godin book. But he talks about how they did a taste test of different wines with like people who know how to taste wine professionals and the people drinking wine out of these fancy glasses said that wine was better or more expensive than the wine out of drinking out of like normal glasses. And you probably know the wine was the same. It's the stories we tell ourselves. We want to feel smart when we're drinking wine out of a fancy glass. We want to believe that it's fancy wine and because we want to believe it we believe it because of the placebo effect which i'm not going to get into here but just remember when it comes to business it's not journalism we want to hear what we want to hear we want confirmation bias in the the food philosophies we subscribe to in the the books that we read if i read about self-development i don't want to hear about how Maybe I'm doing it too much, even though maybe that's at times what I need. But we want to hear what we want to hear. There are two ways to play Pictionary. The first way is to get your suggestion, let's say it's salad. You think, you conjure up a picture in your mind and then you start drawing and you tune out any suggestions and you're just trying to draw the picture. As best as you can from your mind's eye that's the first way to play Pictionary the second way is to immediately put the pen to paper and as your partner is guessing the closer they get the more you focus and expand on whatever you were drawing if you're drawing uh, just a little scribble and it starts to look like and your partner says lettuce then yeah you keep drawing faster what that illustrates is the importance of having a dialogue with your audience. Let's go back to that an earlier example of teaching someone how to do an editing trick on Photoshop. If someone comments and says, yeah, I love this video, but I want to know how to do blah, blah, blah. The fact that that audience member isn't going off and searching for it themselves should tell you how devoted they are And if you continue to tune out your audience and what they want, and you're just like, I I just want to learn how to edit this, even though all my audience wants to know how to do this. you, You may feel more satisfied in the moment to do what you want to do. But by not having that dialogue, you're losing trust. Your audience doesn't see you as someone they can communicate with. So I, I think that would be lesson three. I'm having trouble counting of this subtle art of branding yourself. Have a dialogue. Even if your audience is 10 people, which mine is, have a dialogue. Say, what do you wish you could know more about? What book do you want me to read for you and just give you the best bits of wisdom? Because I know your time is valuable. Have a dialogue, no matter how small your audience is. Pictionary is played with two people not one the the point the goal is to get the answer right It's not about how good your drawing is and so to go back to something. I didn't really emphasize What does it mean to be a creative? And in my opinion Creative is the ideas you share not your skills your skill is your ability to write in engaging prose to draw, to film, to know how to use Photoshop and Premiere, to sell, to speak, to lead, to get people excited. Those are all skills. Creativity, to be a creative, is to use those skills in a way that hasn't been done before to emphasize an idea, to bring an idea to a new group of people or express it in a new way. Because the way I see it, I'm basically translating half my ideas from Seth Godin and bringing them to creatives, to filmmakers, to uh, writers and musicians. So I'm not bringing anything new to the table. I mean, I'm mashing some of my own opinions into these ideas I'm reading, but for the most part, I'm not the inventor of these ideas. I'm merely bringing them to you. And I would say my skill might be the fact that I know how to edit this podcast that I know how to speak as simple as that sounds. But the creativity is the ideas that are flowing. You know, I think collage art is a cool example of this idea of skills versus creativity. Of course, there's some skill involved in using Photoshop, but really when it comes down to it, collage is solely about the idea because in an illustrator, ...might be able to impress an audience by drawing a m- almost perfect replica of a plant. But if you um, are a collage artist and you throw a, a cutout of a plant and put it on a different table, people will ask, why'd you do this? There's, no, there's nothing special about this. But the reason the illustrator can do that is because their skill is so um, immense that that is impressive in and of itself. But when you take away the skill, all that's left is the idea. So I don't want you to equate the skill and creativity because the entrepreneur who has no artistic talent can be creative in the ideas uh, he or she expresses. There are four kinds of luck. And this is from the Almanac of Naval Kant. The first, and I'm just going to read from the book, the first kind is blind luck, where one gets lucky because of something out of their control. Then there's a second type of luck that's that comes through persistence, hard work, hustle, when you're just creating as many opportunities as possible, doing as much as you possibly can, working, you know, 18-hour days trying to network with as many people as you can, and eventually, it's like a petri dish mixing something in a petri dish eventually something might come out of that the third kind is to be very good at spotting luck if you're skilled in a field you can notice when a lucky break happens if you know the lingo of silicon valley then you might know when a company is blossoming into something immensely valuable You become sensitive to luck. And the third kind, which in the book they say is the weirdest and hardest kind, is when you build a unique character, a unique brand, a unique mindset, which causes luck to find you. Which causes luck to find you. That's amazing. And in the book they give the example of if some person finds a buried treasure In the bottom of the ocean, they're going to seek out the, the world's best free diver because they're the only person that can do it. And they've branded themselves as the best free diver. They'll hire them to get the treasure and give them a, you know, half of the, the money and all that person had to do was be the, to advertise to market themselves as the best free diver. But how can you be the best at something, especially in a creative field where art is subjective, where skill can go so many different directions? What do you focus on? The truth is, I haven't found what I need to focus on. But the good news is, I don't think you need to. I think it's better to think of life in terms of projects and don't think of it in terms of career and passion, because when you think of life in terms of projects, you're not limited to one thing for the rest of your life. You can be a, a writer for five years, and then spend a year learning how to draw, and become a illustrator for another five years, and then start your own business, start a design firm, and you're not you're not limited to saying. You know for myself, oh, I'm a filmmaker. I can only make films the rest of my life because that's what I was born to do. I don't buy that at all. And of course, I'm so young and my mind is changing quickly about what I want to do. This advice may change if I really find something and stick with it. But I think there's freedom in in saying that life is a series of projects and not one passion you have to find and then stay with it the rest of your life. Next thing I want to talk about is the big myths about being creative, which relates to what I was just talking about. And I think it should set you at ease. Myth one, you have to be a hundred percent original. That was a crippling belief I had before I started the blog. I truly thought I couldn't write something until it couldn't be traced back to anyone else. And when I gave up that belief, I'm still creating work and sharing ideas that are partially my own. But when I give myself that freedom to use some people's ideas in my work and clearly say I'm not hiding that fact, but you get that synergy of, My opinions and my worldview mixed with other people's ideas create something new. But I still have that freedom to use other people's ideas, to share other people's ideas. And I know that just naturally, the way I write, the way I think, it will naturally become something original. Myth number two, you can't start until you know what makes you unique. Or until you know you're right. So I think this goes back to the interview I did two weeks ago with Kamau. And he had told me, and I asked him the question of, does a young artist, does a young filmmaker need to articulate their work when they're starting out? And he said something along the lines of, you know, when you hear these Famous directors and just filmmakers talk about their work and they've been doing it for decades. They know how to talk about their work. But as young artists, we may just have this instinct of not being able be able to articulate it yet, but that doesn't mean you should wait until you need to. You don't need to wait until you describe your voice before you start. And that was one of the other things that held uh, me back and it's still something I contemplate is I I truly only recently feel like I know what the point of Purple Elephant is about. Only recently have I have I been able to say who is it for, what is it for? But even that I'm wishy-washy on. Yes, maybe it's for creatives, young creatives like me. But what is it for? What am I trying to share? And I think it varies because I don't think a lot of young artists are reading the books I'm reading. So I can present ideas that maybe they've never heard, but I can present it from a voice of, I'm also a creator too. I love making films. I love making art, recording podcasts. I'm young just like you. And I think my voice gives me the different perspective that I can share these ideas in a unique way. But I w- but just to be clear, I wouldn't have been able to articulate that when I started. So keep that in mind. You don't need to know who it's for or what it's for right away. You figure it out as you create. Okay, myth number three. Artists don't have to aim their work at anyone. And that goes back to that quote I said earlier of creativity without a strategy is called art. Creativity with strategy is called advertising. I put that as a myth because, well, I think part of being an artist is having people see your work, having the chance that it may fail, that people might not understand your vision. And the only way you do that is, you know, if you share your work and the only way people are going to see the work is if you're able to categorize it somehow. Because I continually talked about niches and groups within groups, subcategories But you still need to define a category. You can't say, my work is so different that it's nothing. That you would never be able to relate it to anything. Because even the most absurd things and wildly imaginative things can be described as experimental film. Which is a very miscellaneous category, but it's still a category. And there's a certain type of people who watch those films you need to categorize it because if you don't then a your audience won't find it and because your audience won't find it you're kind of cheating yourself and you're cheating you're basically taking the risk out of art because you're saying you know people probably won't see this and it makes it less risky but it makes it less worthwhile myth number four Creativity is based on skill in the sense of a painter is creative, but an engineer is not. I feel like I expressed that earlier when I described the difference of, you know, yes, there's artistic skill, but that's different than the idea behind something. And creativity is really the idea, how you present it. Your skill, your ability to draw is merely the, the tool to get there. Number five, and the final one. You have to be, you have to pick an area to be creative and stick with it. And that was what I was talking about earlier. You're not limited to your quote unquote passion, to your purpose or meaning in life. You're not limited to any one thing. You could stop trying to write and, you know, go off and make films for the rest of your life, or you could stop midway through at three years in and try to make a. Paintings the rest of your life. You're not limited to anything. (laughs) Preach to the choir. Sell to the choir. As I'm wrapping this up, and I know as I'm recording this, and it's an hour in on the recording, I'm probably going to cut a lot out because I've been rambling. But (laughs) like I said, there's a lot going on in my head for this episode. As we wrap up this episode, I want to talk about kind of the final important thing to think about. Otaku. And what that means, and I've heard it from Seth Godin in The Purple Cow, an otaku is like an obsession, but a little less than that. It's not a harmful obsession, it's not an addiction, but it's just to be a passionate part of a community. There's a hot sauce, otaku. There's a group of people who want to continually try the hottest sauce. Or try the one with double ghost pepper chilies. And they're, they're crazy in a sense, but they love that. You know, I feel like my, my sister has a candle otaku. Where you know that if you're going to get her a birthday present or Christmas gift, get her a candle. You can't go wrong. And it doesn't mean you have to be an expert. It just means to be a part of that community. I think right now I'm developing a a chess otaku (laughs) because I've been watching like an hour worth of videos about it and playing like 30 minutes a day, which doesn't even, that's not even a lot, but like I said, I feel like it's a baby one. But okay, the point, the reason I bring up otakus is because not everything has an otaku. Mustard may have one, but ketchup does not. Because there's an infinite amount of fancy mustards. And there's really only a few kinds of ketchup. There's Heinz and then the off-brand. So not everything has an otaku. And what that means is if you're solo, if you're not a big business, if you're not Procter & Gamble, only focus on otakus. Don't try to start a Ketchup business is what I'm telling you, unless you think you can somehow create an otaku out of that. Ignore what I just said. That's That's too much. Find the otaku and then build your brand around that. Otakus are easy to find. They're everywhere. Tons of foods have otakus associated with them. Clothing brands have otakus associated with them. I think of Supreme. Or uh, Yeezy's shoes. So they're not hard to find. The thing about otakus. Is that you don't need to. Be the most passionate member. Before you start contributing. And I think that that thought. That belief might hold people back. You can start a blog about. 3D printing. And not know anything but be committed to learning and use the blog as an excuse to go in more depth so don't let that stop you if you're a beginner at something don't let that stop you from creating instantly because honestly I personally think it's the the beginner the person who's the least arrogant who has the most humility that's going to bring the most genuine information the stuff that helped them the tips and tricks Those are the people I want to listen to as long as they're committed to contributing regularly, as long as they are professional amateurs. What, you know, what I said way at the beginning, if they're committed to posting on a schedule day after day, week after week, if they write and, you know, provide sources and stuff that I wouldn't have discovered on my own, and then once that community has been built up once that brand has been established once you've made yourself a prominent member in the uh in that specific otaku then you begin the dialogue of you know what do you want to see more of what are you struggling with what can i help you answer about you know whether it's hot sauce what was a hot sauce you wish you could try you know and then you can bring the product to the people so to summarize this long ramble into a few sentences to summarize what does it mean to subtly brand yourself as a creative it means to make plenty of projects to not limit yourself to one passion to constantly be curious to seek out otaku's and maybe fall in love with a couple explore new communities and then using your skills your artistic abilities using those and presenting ideas that uh the people in the otaku want to hear present them with your unique skill set whether they're artistic tools or social tools like um knowing how to speak, knowing how to lead people, whatever your tu- the tools are, whatever your skill set is, using that to preach to the choir. And then once you have built up an audience in that otaku, because you're giving them what they want, because you're listening to them, you have that dialogue with them, then you sell to the choir. And I don't want that... I- Without going on a long rant, I think selling has this bad connotation of you're just using people to make money. But when you have established yourself in that otaku, and you have listened to the people in the community and hear what they want, if they want that new hot sauce, and you know how to make it, then by providing that, by creating an e-commerce store which sells weird, unique hot sauces... You are doing both of you a favor. The person who asked for it and yourself. is a win-win situation. They get the thing they wanted. You brought it to them. You brought it to market. And you earn money. And you also earn their trust so that you can come back tomorrow with a new hot sauce. You can start a monthly subscription box for hot sauces You can earn their trust and build a brand, build a business, and build a, a life working on creative pursuits. So just remember, life is a series of projects, risky, creative, generous projects. I hope you make something matter. Hey guys i've really fallen in love with the medium of podcasting and i finally feel comfortable to where i want to ask for your support so in the description and in all the descriptions following this episode i'm going to start putting a link for a spot for you to donate a small monthly amount of either a buck five bucks or ten bucks a month now this money is going to help the podcast grow. It's going to show me that this is worth my time. And because this is for creators, by a creator, I would hope that you can see that I'm doing this so I can sustain the act of creating. So if you really like this podcast, if you want to support the show, go down in the description, click the link to chip in a small amount to support the show. Thanks. This has been Purple Elephant Radio. Don't forget to subscribe, and we'll see you next week.